So God, uh, may you be our vision this morning. Would you go out and before us in this service time, and even as we've just prayed for the direction in the lives of these children and their parents, um, Lord, we just pray that you would be our focus, that we would fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. Strengthen us this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Welcome, God's people. How are you? Good. Hey, um, my name's Matt. I'm one of the guys that hangs out and works here. I'm glad to have you here. We have about 156, not about, that's an exact number, uh, people in Mexico right now from Calvary. They are building five homes in Mexico. So um, just keep them in your prayers as you're thinking about them. You're wondering maybe there's a few people missing this morning. Um, What we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk about the testing of the Lamb of God, Jesus. Eric got us started on some things last week, and I want to continue and pick up where he left off. But I want to let you know also that when I started here at Calvary, I worked with fifth and sixth graders, and we got away with some stuff that really, like, maybe we should have been, we should have had lawsuits in some of these uh, different instances. Um, And some of it was pretty benign, like we'd blindfold kids and make them eat, like, a ton of bananas to the point that they would throw up. Um, those were fun. Um, there were, you know, lots of other things where we just get a blender and throw all kinds of stuff into the blender. You just mix it up and then you see which kids would actually like drink the whole thing. That was really fun. And again, they would throw up. But perhaps uh, the other thing that we would do is we would um, do this thing where we're trying to teach kids about listening and hearing the voice of God. And so we would set the kids up like on one side of the room over here and say, your point, your goal is you have to go from here all the way over to the other side. But we have some obstacles in the way. So we put some chairs and some tables and some bean bags. We blindfold the kids, by the way. And in addition to some of those other obstacles, we put like a whole bunch of rat traps. And we set them. And we put somebody on the other side and we said, we want you to listen to them, listen to their voice while all the other kids are going to be making noise. Try to fix your ears on their voice as you walk across. And by the way, take your shoes off too. You're going to do this barefoot. You're tithing dollars at work 20 years ago. Isn't that fantastic? And so that's how we brought kids to Jesus was they were just scared for their life and they just decided we got to, it, it worked every single time, right? traps. Um, I want to talk today because there's a group of people called the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin, they did not like the power or the popularity that Jesus was getting amongst the people. And so they wanted to set traps up for him, and they were testing Jesus. They were trying to figure out what was going on. And so we are in a series. We've been in the book of Mark for like four years or something like that. It's coming to an end, I promise, around Easter. Um, But we're in Mark chapter 12, and we're going to start in verse 13. But before we go there, I want you to understand that we need a proper understanding of the lamb before the lamb. Okay, let me say that again. We need a proper understanding of the lamb, lowercase lamb, before the lamb, uppercase lamb. And I want to bring you back to Exodus chapter 12. This is the Passover. And so God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, hey, I'm going to get you out of Egypt, but before we do that, I want you to do something. And so this is what he says. He says, speak to all of the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, that month happened to be a month called Nisan, not the car, but a Jewish month on the Jewish calendar. On the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, 
a year old, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, and then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Now there's this thing that takes place. They bring the lambs in and they're looking. And for those next few days, what are they doing? They're inspecting it. They're scrutinizing it. They're looking to see, is this lamb truly without spot? Is this lamb truly without blemish? Is this lamb indeed perfect? Well, as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, if it was not on the 10th of Nisan, it was definitely around that. And as he comes in, we have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. We have another lamb, the lamb of God who makes his way into Jerusalem. And if you've been to Israel with us, you know this is a hotbed of excitement and flurry. Everybody's there. Everybody is there. And the purpose is that he would be scrutinized. The purpose is that he would be tested. And it's over this period of the next few days that Jesus is getting asked a lot of questions. And so in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, we have the Sanhedrin. It's this ruling body of Jewish authority. And so they are sending different groups of Jewish people. And we'll get some of the divisions as we go through this. But they're sending them in. And you can see what they're saying. They sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him. Why? In order to trap him in a statement. Let's see if we can get him to say the wrong thing. And then maybe the people will turn and the popularity will shift. Maybe he'll say something that's against some Roman rule and we can get him out of here so we don't have to worry about this Jesus again. And we have the other Gospels, Matthew and Luke, also tell the same story in different kinds of detail. And so I encourage you to pick up on all three of these stories and, and spend some time with that this week. In Matthew 22, it says, Then the Pharisees, they went and they plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. In Luke, he says, The scribes and the chief priests, they tried to lay hands on him that very hour. If they could have done it on that day, they would have done it on that day. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against him. So they watched him and they sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statements so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. And so this is the picture. And so last week, Eric actually walked us through. And there is a bulletin. Uh, and inside that bulletin, there's an outline. And basically, all of this stuff is laid out here. So you can look at all of the verses. And you can read this story in three different places. Um, but Eric brought us through this passage last week, and the question that they bring to him is, by whose authority do you speak? And Jesus turns the tables around and he says, I'll tell you, but first you answer me this question. And so they go back and forth, but the result, there's an attack, and then Jesus answers, and then the response is, and answering Jesus, they said, we don't know. <laughs> uh, that, that was a really good answer, Jesus. In Mark, and so they left him and they went away. In Luke, he says they answered that they did not know where it came from. So this first question, this first trap was a question of authority. And now we have the second one. And this is a question of politics. And so would you look with me in Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And let's look at this. It says, then they, the Sanhedrin, sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and they said, Teacher, we're going to kiss up to you a little bit. We know that you are truthful and you defer to no one. 
For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. They don't believe a word they're saying. So here's the question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, he knows their hearts, he said to them, why are you testing me? So Jesus is aware of what's going on. And so this is the attack. This is a question of politics. And over Jewish history, there's a lot of debate and do we pay this tax? Because what happens is if you actually pay this tax to Rome, then you might be saying that the Caesar or the emperor is king and God is not. So there's this quandary for the Jews at the time. But if Jesus says, no, no, don't pay the tax, well, now Rome's going to get him and now he's creating this uprising. The same uprising takes place later in the Jewish revolt, starts in 66 AD, going all the way to the destruction of the temple in 70. And so Jesus has this big question. And so he answers them. He, knowing their hypocrisy, he said, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one and he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, he's talking to this Jewish crowd of folks, and he says, Listen, go get me one of those coins. Now, chances are, nobody in that crowd actually had one of those coins. There was a whole separate set of currency, a Jewish shekel that they would take, and they would bring that for the temple tax. But this Roman denarius, you can actually, if you go to Israel, you can actually purchase one of these for about 80 bucks for a really cheap one or 800, 1200 for a really nice one where you can see all of the detail. But he says, whose inscription, whose face is on here? And they said, it's, it's Caesar's. Well, that, then that's his. Just give that to him. And what's God's, you give to God. And from the very beginning... God says that I have made you in my image. And Jesus is confronting them at this point, and he's saying, look, you are supposed to be bearing my image. You need to give yourself over to me. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. And so that is his answer, and their response, hearing this in Matthew, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. (laughs) That one didn't work. Or we have in Mark, they were amazed at him. In Luke, they were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people and being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Wiley Coyote. Let's transition for a second. We get to watch cartoons in church. You know, as you start to see some of these traps that are set and you'd think that Jesus is going to walk right into it. Have you ever thought about this relationship between Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner? And yet you're, you're kind of secretly rooting for the Coyote, just hoping that maybe one of the Acme products is going to work. But every time that crafty Roadrunner, he gets out of the trap, it's something like this. This is in 4K HD. Check this out.
do it? How did he get out? We laid the perfect trap and he gets out. And not only that, but we have Pharisees and Herodians working together. Both Jewish sets of people, but the Pharisees, strict adherence to the law and the oral tradition. But then you have the Herodians that are Jews, but they love Herod. They love Rome because Rome gives them some security. And so they're much more willing to give over. These two groups would really never come together except that they had a common enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So let's come together. Let's get rid of Jesus because he's bad for both of us. And let's trap him. Well, the creators of Wiley Coyote... They, they had 11 rules. You could look this up later, but I wanted to give you just a few of them so you could understand um, as they're creating the character, this is what would happen. Whenever possible, make gravity the coyote's greatest enemy. All right, so he's always falling. He's always getting hurt. The coyote could stop anytime if you were not a fanatic. If only the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sanhedrin could do the same. The coyote is always more humiliated than harmed by his failures. And then, no outside force can harm the coyote, only his own ineptitude or the failure of the Acme products. Trains and trucks were the exception from time to time. (laughs) And so I want you to be, as you're thinking about these guys that keep laying down the trap, and Jesus comes up, he steps right on the trap and says, what are you guys doing? And they're all, it's going to go, it's going to go. No, it it, it didn't go. What happened? And they tested it, and they got them, right? These are the traps that are being let down. That's question number two. It's a question of politics. And now trap number three is set. It's a question of theology. And the group that is sent now is the Sadducees. The Sadducees, uh, I want you to think of them. This is like the aristocrats. This is the wealthy. They were very tied into the Torah. Only the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They didn't look at the rest of the Old Testament. The Pharisees were much more open to that. And plus the oral tradition, the Mishnah that was around at the time. It was growing up during that time. And so trap number three comes and it's the the Sadducees. And this is in verse 18. And this is what it says. Some Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. This is important because of the question the trap that they are about to lay down. They say there's no resurrection. They come to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children. And the third, likewise. And so all seven left no children. Right? Totally made up. But like, if you're like brother number four, you're, there's something wrong with this lady, right? I probably should not marry her. I might die, right? All seven go through. And last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection that we don't believe in, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married them, her. There's the trap. What are you going to do with that one, Jesus? So what the Sadducees are referring to is something that takes place. It's a, it's a law that takes place way back in Deuteronomy 25. And I love Deuteronomy, and especially Deuteronomy 25. It's just crazy. And I want you to listen to this, okay? Remember, Sadducees. They're looking and they believe in the first five books. And I want you to also understand that resurrection for them 
is not part. They don't believe it because if you actually read through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you will be hard pressed to find just about anything on the resurrection. We have Job and we have Psalms. We have all of these other passages that talk about it. The Pharisees were way open to the supernatural, but Sadducees were not. And so they delivered this crazy, heinous situation. But Moses talks about this situation. And in Deuteronomy 25, starting in verse 5, this is what it says. And I want you to listen at the audacity of the law at times. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. We're going to keep it all in the family and we're going to raise up offspring so that the family name can continue to go on. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Do you understand what's going on? If my brother dies, Shelly, I have to marry you. It's in the law. That's what happened. Marily, I'm sorry. I know this is weird. It's awkward. Uh, we have a kid, and then I have to... Let, let's turn it around, because I'll probably actually die before my brother. So let's say I die. Now, my brother Steve now has to marry my wife, Marily. If they have a child, then he has to name that child Matthew, right? So he can remember me for the rest of his life. Now, let's say that this happens, and my brother does not want to do that which he better not. And this is what happens. In verse 7 of Deuteronomy 25, If the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say this, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Can you imagine making this complaint? Then the elders of the city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull off his sandal and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Oh, <laughs> you got me there. I mean, can you imagine now you're walking through all of Israel? There's that guy, the guy whose sandal has been removed. She's spit in his face. And so this is a conundrum. And you know, the Sadducees actually love to ask this question. There's like writings about this, like just dig deep. If you get bored, if you have problems sleeping, just read this, just go to the Mishnah and look at all of the discussions that took place. And they would say, well, what do we do about this? So that's the attack. And now Jesus has the answer and you can see it. It's laid out. You can see it in all of the gospels. And this is what Jesus says. Is this not the reason you are mistaken that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? There's a crowd standing there, right? Jesus says, is this why you're not mistaken? That word mistaken is planeo in the Greek. It means like straying stars. It's, it's where we get the word planet from. Like you guys are on a different planet. And it's because you don't understand the scriptures. He's saying that to a Sadducee who they've spent and immersed their lives in the scripture. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. You don't understand 
anything. And now the crowd's like, oh, you got him, right? Like, they're all watching this. For when they rise from the dead, when there is this resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. There's a spiritual body that does not need to reproduce. Therefore, there is no marriage. And half of you just now, you said, oh, that's so sad. Do I even want to go? And then the other half of you are saying, oh, thank goodness, there's no marriage in heaven. If that's you, I'm teaching a marriage class on Wednesday nights. It's called The Crazy Cycle of Marriage. I'll see you Wednesday at 7 o'clock. All right. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read, he's asking this to the Sadducees, by the way, have you not read the book of Moses, the Torah? You guys have read it, right? In the passage about the burning bush, you know, Exodus 3, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. You are on another planet. And so Jesus, and we're going to have to just trust his interpretation because he is God and author of all things. When God says to Moses, I am, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God makes these promises. He makes a covenant, right, for land, seed, blessing to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The problem is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died. And so if God is saying, I am the God, I was not, he didn't say I was the God, then that means that they had to be resurrected, that they are alive. And so he says this. And so then we have the response of the people. In Matthew, when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Mark says, one of the scribes came, and this is the next passage we're going to get into, heard them arguing, recognizing that he had answered them well. I love Luke. He says, they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. And now we get to the fourth one. And I want you to just understand this, that the Sadducees, they were, they were so... They were so immersed in this idea, the lack of resurrection. Um, they're, they're, it just If you wanted to like understand like what was the Sadducees' theology on just life in general, you, you could go to the Apocrypha. There's this really great book called The Wisdom of Solomon. Just listen to this. I want you to just understand where they're coming from and how much Jesus put them in their place. They said, No one has been known to return from Hades. For we were born by mere chance, and hereafter we shall be as though we had never been. For the breath in our nostrils is smoke, and when it is extinguished, the body will turn to ashes and the spirit will dissolve like empty air. Our name will be forgotten in time, and no one will remember our works. Our life will pass away like traces of a cloud and be scattered like mist that is chased by the rays of the sun and overcome by its heat." For our allotted time is the passing of a shadow and there is no return from our death because it is sealed up and no one turns back. And that is their belief on why there's no resurrection. And so the implication of this and how they live as a result, they say, come therefore, let us enjoy the good things that exist and make use of the creation to the full as in youth. Let us take our fill of costly wine and perfumes and let no flower of spring pass us by. Let none of us fail to share in our revelry. Everywhere let us leave signs of enjoyment because this is our portion and this is our lot. 
Let's drink and let's eat and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That describes the Sadducees' frame of mind 2,000 years ago, and it's not all that different from us in Orange County today. And so Jesus is challenging them. He's saying there is a resurrection, and there is a time where you are going to have to answer for your deeds. And so there's a fourth trap. And this is what it says. One of the scribes came and he heard them arguing and recognizing that he, that Jesus, answered them well. He said, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now I want you to understand a scribe was somebody that knew the Torah, but he knew all of the litigation. He's almost like a lawyer. He would be the one who would be able to say, well, it says this in the Torah and therefore this is what needs to happen in this situation. And there would be this running argument, there are 613 commandments, right? 365 of them were negative, 248 of them were positive. If you look through Genesis, through Deuteronomy, there's 613 of these commandments. Actually, one commandment for every letter of the 10 commandments written in Exodus chapter 20. And on top of those 613 was another 1,500 plus that came from their oral tradition. So we're not talking just about hundreds, but there are now thousands. And so how are they possibly going to live this out? So they had to have this question. Can you summarize this for me? What is the most important? What are the heavier laws and what are the lighter ones? So Jesus said, foremost is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. This was Jesus' answer. You can go back to Deuteronomy 6, where he's quoting the Shema. It means to hear. And the implication is not only that you would hear, but that you would do. It's like when you ask your kids, did you hear me? The implication is you need to hear and you need to do what I'm saying. And so Jesus, he actually adds a bit to the quote and he says that you should love God with all of your mind. And he's going after this scribe. The word mind is not showing up the first time this shows up in Deuteronomy 6. And he says, look, we need to make sure that we understand God with all of our mind as well. This is the most important thing. And the scribe said to him, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all of the heart and with all of the understanding and with all of the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The trap was set. Jesus walked right into the middle of it and then walked right out. And their response, no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. The lamb had been tested and the lamb had been shown to not have any spots or blemish. He was perfect. 
I believe that we have to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. Uh, Tomorrow we will remember Martin Luther King Jr. It was on August 28, 1963 that he stood at the National Mall and he gave his I Have a Dream speech. And it's a memorable moment. On that spot, even today, there's an inscription there. It says, I have a dream. It's to remember that moment. Martin Luther, he said this about his relationship with Jesus and who his God was. He said, the God whom we worship is not a weak and incompetent God. He is able to beat back gigantic waves of opposition and bring and to bring low prodigious mountains of evil. The ringing testimony of the Christian faith is that God is able. I hope that your faith is strengthened when he says to this scribe, you are not far from the kingdom. I wonder how many of us have played this game of our own searching and trying to stump the rabbi and say, well, what about this? I mean, many of you have intellectually gone after your relationship and sought answers for God and... The sad part about all of this is that they walked away and just a couple days later they put him on trial and they crucify him. It did not lead to faith. They were so close to the kingdom and yet so far. And so Jesus is the lamb who won this battle but the war is not yet over. And we know how that story ends and we're building our way there. And just when they think that they won, we have Easter, we have Resurrection Day. And that battle continues on. Closing out this passage in verse 35. This is what it says. Jesus began to say, and he's asking a question of them now. How is it that the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? David said himself in the Holy Spirit, and he quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. And he says, David calls, David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? He's saying, we know that the Messiah would come from the line of David. He would be David's son. Why is David, the father, calling the king, the Messiah who was to come, His Lord, you would never do that in this society. In this honor society, the son was to bring glory to the father. But David calls the Messiah his Lord. So in his humanity, he is David's son. In his deity, he is David's Lord. So this one who rode into Jerusalem just a few days earlier proved to be without spot and without blemish. My question for us is where do we land with all of this? Jesus makes some amazing implications and he closes this whole section out. He says that there's a large crowd that enjoyed listening to him. I think that there's some of the common folks that were around there and they're watching Jesus just tear apart the establishment. It says they enjoyed listening. And then Jesus has a word about the Sanhedrin and the Jewish religious leaders at the time. And in his teaching, he was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. They would lengthen their robes so they looked more important. 
and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces as they would go. They, they would love it when people would say, oh, rabbi, oh, teacher. And they would sit in the chief seats, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. If you read Matthew's account, he finishes that up in the end of chapter 22. And then in chapter 23, he goes on to pronounce eight woes against the Pharisees. Woe to you, you scribes and you Pharisees, you hypocrites. You whitewashed tombs. You clean the outside of the cup. You look really great and shiny on the outside. But on the inside, there's death. My hope and my question for us as we sit in this is... Have you become convinced, maybe even intellectually, you've come to the end and you found that Jesus is the answer, but your heart has not come with you? That you are close to the kingdom of God, but you've not fully given yourself over to make him Lord of your life? Do we want to be like that community that is on a different planet that did not believe or understand the scriptures that were written or the power of God. The invitation for us is to move into that and to put our faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the band to come up and we're going to continue to worship through music. I want you to sit with this. Uh, This morning we're going to take an offering And the ushers will come forward in a second and we'll do that. I just want to also just thank you. I know Eric mentioned it last week, but what a faithful and amazing community of people that we have here that have been pouring themselves out in service and in financial offering and blessing. We're going to take that offering this morning. um, But after the offering is passed, we want you to be able to engage and you have some time with the Lord. We have stations and tables around the sanctuary here where you can take communion You can remember Jesus. But I want us to remember that he is truth. I want us to remember that he wants to be Lord of your life. That he was the lamb without spot, without blemish. And so we put our trust and we put our faith in him. And that is why we are called children of God. So would you join me as we pray? God, thankful for your son, Jesus. Would you this morning, if there are any of us in here that have been struggling in this process of our faith, that have diligently been seeking out, God, how would we live our lives for you? Lord, that we would continue to wrestle, but Lord, that in our wrestling and in our search and in our pursuit, that that would lead to faith, that we would be part of your kingdom. And so this morning, would you just move in our hearts this morning? Speak to us. May we walk out of here with hearts that have poured ourselves out in worship to you. In Jesus' name, amen.